Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Happy winter solstice, everybody. It's the shortest day of the year here in the Northern Hemisphere. Darkness for many, many hours. I've been thinking a lot about darkness and light lately. Feeling like hopefully there's a light at the end of this tunnel. We're getting closer now. These vaccines are out there. People are taking them. The Pfizer one's out. The Moderna one's out. Maybe we'll be uh, in the springtime before we know it, metaphorically speaking. Anthony Rudell is my guest today. He also goes by Tony. He is the general manager at GBH Music and the station manager for WCRB-FM here in Boston. GBH, of course, is the public media powerhouse here in Boston. They used to go by WGBH, but they dropped the W, I don't know, maybe a month or two or so ago. So GBH now. But they run the PBS station here in Boston. They run an NPR station. And for the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years now, they have also been in charge of the classical radio station here in Boston. It was a commercial station for a long time. It got sold to WGBH. And uh, Anthony has been at the helm of the station for the last almost seven years now. And, you know, as we think about what brings us light during this time of year, what sustains us, what keeps us going... WCRB is on that list for me, honestly. I am not a classical music fan. I don't know classical music very well, but I have found myself tuning in to WCRB pretty consistently and much more regularly in the last, I don't know, five years or so. And especially during this pandemic, you know, I have a couple of smart speakers around the house, one in my kitchen, one down in my basement where I have a little wood shop. And I'll just have WCRB on for, you know, a couple hours at a time. Just as nice kind of background music. It's relaxing. It's calming. And in a weird way, it centers me in a time where in a lot of other ways, I felt a little unmoored. So it's nice to have that experience from a radio station. And my tuning into WCRB with increasing frequency is no accident. And Tony will talk about some of the things he's doing behind the scenes to keep guys like me listening, to get us hooked, and to keep bringing us back. And honestly, it's interesting because he's pulling a lot of format things from rock and roll. So if you're into radio and the radio business, you're going to learn a lot today. And even if you're not a big radio person, I think there's a lot to learn just about how businesses run. So Tony has crazy deep roots in classical music. His father was conductor Julius Rudell, head of the New York City Opera when he was growing up. He was an on-air host on WQXR, the classical station in New York, before becoming VP of programming in his 20s. And he's had connections to classical music all throughout his career up until getting here to WCRB in Boston seven years ago. And the other big push that Tony has had during this time is to get more live music back into people's homes. It's very difficult, obviously, with everything that's going on because we can't be in concert halls and stuff right now, but he's been bringing in old recordings of live music, and they've even spearheaded a number of live performances just for radio and also for GBH TV. The most recent example that's really relevant for this Christmas season is Handel and Haydn Society here in Boston. They have performed Handel's Messiah every Christmas season for 166 years. 
Think about that for a minute. 166 years. Obviously, this year, it was in danger of not being played, certainly for a live audience. And so Tony and his team at GBH worked with the Handel and Haydn Society to figure out a way to record a live performance that could be socially distanced for the performers, for the singers, for everybody, the the TV crew involved. It actually aired last night on GBH here in Boston, but it is streaming now. If you want to go check it out, go to WGBH.org or classicalwcrb.org. And they actually call it Handel's Messiah for Our Time. And if you take a look at it, you'll see that it is not just a straight performance, but it's uh, it's got a lot of imagery of what we've been going through over this last year and uh, just trying to find our footing. He's also written a number of books. Perhaps the most relevant to this conversation is a book called Hello, Everybody, The Dawn of American Radio. Here it is, my conversation with Tony Rudell. Well, I want to start just with the big kind of general overarching question of this quarantine period, you know, since March, these last, I don't know, eight, nine months. How has nine that months. period, yeah, how has that period been for you? Well, I, I'll walk you through it. It's been, you know, I, I hate to say there's a silver lining because God knows I'd rather have never lived through this. Sure. I, I remember going home, in ironies of ironies, I went home on Thursday, March 12th stopped at the supermarket and got home and the next morning was about to go to work knowing we were closing that evening, uh-huh. you know, and, and having a, a, a skeletal staff in the studios just to stay on the air. And on Friday morning, March 13th, my wife woke up with a fever mm. and all of a sudden I realized I can't go anywhere. Right Now she spiked a fever and 48 hours later was fine. Whether she had COVID or not, we've never figured out, but yeah. it's irrelevant to the story. The point I'm driving at is I, my ending of being in work was very sudden and unanticipated Right. because I was going to go in one more day, you know, get some stuff from my desk, put things in order, including getting my laptop, which I left there oh, wow. and things like that. So that weekend, I remember first of all, being concerned about my wife's health, but then once I was over that, I realized that there was a very important decision to be made. And that decision was, do we just keep doing, you know, the on-air stuff and staying on the air as important as that is and vital as that lifeline to normalcy would be, playing great music all the time? Or do we try to do something above and beyond? Do we push the envelope in new directions? I remember that Monday morning talking to some of the key people on my radio staff and I got off the phone and, and they were, I mean, there was real fear, Right. not only for the, the, the health of people, but what does this mean for our business? What does right. this mean for what we do? How do we keep doing what we do? I mean, we knew, for example, we broadcast the Boston Symphony Orchestra 50 concerts a year. All of a sudden that was going to stop because they can't play. Right. And if they can't play, we have no content to to put in that. So I got off the phone that Monday, and I remember sitting at my desk in my apartment and making notes to myself of what we might be able to do. In a strange way, the pandemic in its infancy at that juncture was, okay, for the short term, let's turn on the jets and see what we can really do. So first thing we did is we reached out to the BSO and said, we want to keep the sense of live music on the air. We think that sound of an audience applauding 
is a connection to humanity that we want to keep. Right. And they gave us access to the archives, thanks to the musicians who were just wonderful. And we were able to then, instead of playing the Boston Symphony Orchestra one night a week, we played excerpts from broadcast six nights a week. And then we created a festival of, I don't remember what the number was, it was like 1770 or something, and it combined Baroque performances and classical performances. So it was sort of this, you know, using a lot of the groups in Boston, Boston Baroque, Handel and Haydn Society, using the the concerts we had of theirs in our archives, and using that to fill in some more and create more live content. And that was great for the first month and a half or so. And it, it really sustained us and our listenership loved it. Yeah. I will tell you the pivotal moment for me came in, I guess it was late April. And I'm guessing on the day, but it was definitely in the month of April. We decided to try a very soft two-day, you know, sort of gentle mention, we know things are tough, but we are a public broadcasting facility station. If you can contribute, we'd like you to. And that was all. We didn't do, you know, what we call a pledge drive. We just kept playing music. And the donations flooded in. Wow. And what was fascinating about them is the comments. And there's one I will remember to the day I die and that was a guy who wrote in and said, I've been listening to your station and the music has sustained me as I drive around earning money, delivering Instacart orders to people who can't get out of their homes. Wow. And I'll tell you something, I've been doing this a long time and I know the power of broadcasting and I know about connectivity and I, I love audience reaction. But I I was stunned when I read that, that suddenly it hit me that what we do with music had become much more of a lifeline or a raft or whatever you want to call it than I had realized. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I sense that pattern in myself. I know I've listened to WCRB a lot more during this time and have gravitated a lot more to classical and I'm not, I'm not an aficionado by any means. Like, I don't think I could tell you the difference between a Beethoven and a Bach if it were playing. Like, right. I, I just know I like the sound. But I wonder sort of, you know, it, it feels like we're all gravitating to that music more than maybe, you know, top 40 or country or something else during this time. Like, what do you think it is about classical music? Well, so you, you touch on something very important. If you look at radio station ratings around the country, one of the formats that you see increasing during the pandemic in terms of music is what we lovingly now call classic rock, what I grew up calling album rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how now it's classic, but then it was album. But, you know, they would play like a whole side of an LP, and that's why it was called album rock. Yeah. But there, those numbers have gone up. And I think in that music, there's a comfort and familiarity and constancy of it. What you're describing with classical is what I have always, and and I love rock music, by the way. Sure. Yeah, me too. Though I grew up in the business, and literally grew up in the business, and have been doing radio on and off since I was 19 years old, professional radio since I was 19. I've never thought of myself as, you know, I'm one of those purists who only knows classical. I know my classical, but I know jazz and I know rock, so good. What you're sensing in yourself, I've heard from countless other people. And what they're finding is what I have always believed classical music has, 
which is an expression of humanity, of the full spectrum of human emotion Mm -hmm. in a much deeper way. And music connects to the soul. There is no question about it. You know, why is it when we play a minor key, does an infant cry? I mean, why do we think think something in a minor key is sad? What is it in our in our DNA that makes that happen? You know, my my daughter once described the way I listen to classical music. She said, Dad, you you go to certain pieces the way I go to mac and cheese. (laughs) You know, exactly. You know, there's certain pieces that I turn to when I need to be buoyed. Uh But I know that everybody has a sound that they like or or sounds that they like. And I think what what you've discovered, which a lot of other people have, is you don't need to know the difference between Bach and Beethoven to enjoy it. Any more than you would know, need to know how to cook a Chateaubriand to enjoy it. Right. And I, I, I hear this a lot. We see it in our in the in the comments we've gotten from donors and, and during pledge drives that you're there for me. Yeah. Uh, we get, we just finished a pledge drive ten days ago. We did went back to normal pledge drives and people are yes, I will contribute. And the comments are consistent to what I've talked about. But there was one in particular from a a, a, a doctor. And she said, I haven't had a day off since the pandemic began. Wow. And if it weren't for you, I would have gone insane by now. Yeah. But I turn on CRB and I get lost in the music. Mm. But everyone comes to it for different sounds or different reasons. And the beauty is we're able to draw from 500 years of music. Right. We're not locked in. You know, I don't have to worry about greatest hits of the 80s. Right. And even if I did, I'd still have four century worth of 80s to play with. So, you know, we can really cover the spectrum from the, you know, the Barbara Adagio for strings, which may be the most, the, the saddest nine minutes of music ever written, to the Ode to Joy yeah. and, and everything in the middle. And so you, you, you kind of get a complete, and I'm going to go back to a food analogy, even though I'm not hungry at the moment, <laughs> you do get a complete diet, emotional diet. Yeah with this music. So I think that's what you're feeling. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing at that, but no, that, I, that would be my I, instinct. I think you're right. And it's, you know, background music is, is the wrong word, but it's also kind of the right word. Like it's not, it's not elevator music. It, it's, it's an active part of my day, but you know, I tend to put it on in the kitchen while I'm cooking or, you know, I have a, like a fledgling uh, wood shop in my basement. And if I'm down there woodworking, like I've just found that it's, it's good music to have on because Sometimes, like you, I I like rock music and, you know, everything else, but sometimes music is competing with what I'm trying to do, and especially if I'm trying to be focused on a task. And it's almost it's almost like a like a cinematic soundtrack in a way of just, <laughs> you know, it, it allows me to feel things without without being too conscious of it, if that makes sense. What you describe is is background music. Yeah, that kind of sounds pejorative, but it's not. Yeah. And and the reason is, you know, people have criticized me during my career for, oh, you're making it a background music station. No, we're not. We're, we're making it a station that goes with your life. Yeah. Because I can't ask you to change your life to accommodate my radio station. Right. A good radio station accommodates your life. Just the way, you know, Mozart wrote, I, I'm a huge Mozart fan, okay? So Mozart wrote every kind of music imaginable. And if I want to be completely engaged in Mozart, I might turn on the Requiem or one of his operas or one of the great piano concertos and really focus on it. But on the other hand, the man wrote 
hundreds of hours of music that was meant to be played during dinner. Right. And what's wrong with that? Yeah. You know, if it elevates my dinner a little bit, well, so what? <laughs> you know, it's not background. It's part of my life. Yeah. And in classic rock, it, it what I put on, and I have a, an extensive classic rock collection, what I put on to listen to, if I'm in that mood, could be, you know, the A-side of the second disc of, of the White Album, for yep. example. And I'll listen to that. Or I might go to the greatest hits of Jim Croce, who was, you know, a great songwriter and, and wonderful voice and storyteller. But what I listen to when I when I go to classic rock depends on my mood. Sure. And the same thing is true with classical. I mean, so today, as we're recording this, is Beethoven's 250th birthday. So I had to do... Uh, a lot of work this morning answering emails, and that required me not to be looking at something or listening to something. And I thought, well, it's Beethoven's 250th birthday. Yeah, you could put on the Fifth Symphony, and that's a pretty good listen. Or you right. could put on the Seventh Symphony or the Piano Concertos, and we had all that on the air this today on, on CRB. But I wanted something that was going to lift my energy level to the to a whole other place because I know I have a long day ahead of me. Right. So I put on his Misa Solemnis, which is, you know, a huge orchestra, huge chorus, and they're shouting at you. <laughs> okay. Was I listening to every single note? No. But it it provided me with that, without sounding uh, overtly uh, sympathetic about this, if you will, or, 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 or you know, depressing about it, frankly. It provided me with that connection to this man who was such a humanitarian yeah. and what he expressed, the hope he expressed in that music. Was I listening to it as a musicologist? What God no. <laughs> it was on in the background. Right. Well, and, and that's that's something I want to kind of understand, too, is I feel like I know in my own experience, anecdotally, I have tuned into your station a lot more in the last, I don't know, call it five, six years, maybe then, you know, it was certainly, it was a preset on my dial and I've lived in Boston going on 20 years now. Like I've been here, I've been here a while, but like it was something that I might flip to occasionally. And I just, I find myself going to it more and more as the years go on. And as I understand it, that that's been kind of a deliberate push on your part, right? Like you, you, you want me to tune in more and you're, you're, you know, helping the audience tune in more by the way you're programming the station. Is that fair? Absolutely right. Yeah. So um, I've been here now coming up. I've been head of the station now coming up on seven years in January. Uh-huh. And what we have done in that time, and you've actually articulated it better than I can, <laughs> <laughs> is we have made it a place where any listener can come and discover this music. Yeah. And discover it on their terms, not on my terms. I will tell you about a sign I put in the studio when I first arrived. I said, let the music speak for itself. Mm. I don't need Mozart to be explained to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, any more than I need Billy Joel to be explained to me. Right. And that's not a put down on, on Billy, uh, on Billy Joel, who I, I, I've met Billy, I've worked with Billy. He's a genius composer. I mean, some of his songs are, are the most intricate jewels you'll ever encounter. But if I went on the air on a classic rock station and started doing an analysis of Billy's songs, <laughs> right? Yeah, you'd listen for about 15 seconds and say, okay, well, I want to listen to Billy Joel, I'll put on a CD. Right. I don't need to hear this guy yammer at me. Well, why is classical music any different? Do I need to explain 
eine kleine Nachtmusik to you? I mean, it goes, yum, bum, 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 bum. It's a, it's a little thing Mozart wrote, and it's cheerful, and it's beautiful, and people recognize it. Yeah. What's so bad about that? And I've been accused of, you know, dumbing it down, which is, I, it's a phrase that makes me crazy, because how can you take Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, Haydn, and I can go on and name them all for you? How could you dumb that down? I mean, they wrote it as entertainment. So, you know, this is this is an ongoing thing. I think in the last seven years, I've seen a great diminution of people who criticize us for that. But we have made the station more accessible, if you will, and the numbers reflect that. We we hear from a lot more new listeners who have come to this, and they use the word, I think you used it, in fact, I've discovered your station. Hmm. You hear that a lot. Hey, you know, I've discovered that you, you play some good music. Does that mean we're the only thing they listen to? Absolutely not. Right. Absolutely not. And I wouldn't want that any more than you. And again, I'm using a food analogy. Forgive me. I don't know why I keep doing this. But <laughs> any more than you would use, either you'd eat the same food every single night. Right. I mean, there are people who do. There are people I know who will eat a salad for dinner every single night. Wonderful. If you want to do that, that's your choice. Yeah. But I might want a salad one night, a soup another night, a hamburger the third night, a sandwich the fourth night, a pasta the fifth night. And that's what we we believe listeners do. The other thing is a demographic shift that's kind of interesting. So the baby boom generation, of which I'm at the tail end of, is the first generation to go into maturity that grew up on rock music. Oh, interesting, yeah. Think about that. Right. And grew up on listening to rock music on the radio. I'm one of them. <laughs> you know, I grew up in New York. Yes, I grew up in a musical household. My father was a conductor. I grew up in an opera house. I know my classical music. But I assure you, when I was in high school, I wasn't lying in bed listening to Shostakovich. I was lying in bed listening to Yes or The Who. Right. Or, or Rick Wakeman's Six Wives of Henry VIII. And, and I listened to classic, what was then called album-oriented rock radio. I listened to WNEW in New York. And a lot of the formatic things that they did, I have brought to classical. Because my theory is, if you're comfortable in that environment that you grew up with, but the only thing I'm changing is the food, if you will, the music, maybe you'll listen to us. So the demographics you have to look at are the fact that the audience, in terms of age, that you think of as a classical music audience, is older and yeah. grew up on rock radio. And right. that's never happened before. So did that make sense? I kind of went it, around. It does. But... No, you know, I, I mean, what what's kind of coming to mind, honestly, and again, I'm going to food now, but that kind of like a fast casual restaurant that like Chipotle was, you know, the biggest thing. Uh, you know, whatever, 15, 20 years ago when they first came out. And it was like, oh, my God, this is like the coolest thing. And then, you know, Sweet Green said, OK, we like that. But what if it were salads? And, you know, Panera right. said, what if it were sandwiches? <laughs> you know, it's taking a lot of the same ingredients and, you know, shifting shifting the, the food ingredients, but the, you know, the core restaurant ingredients and customer experience yeah. and price point. And exactly. That's interesting. Um I, I wonder just like, you know, I guess specifically, like what are what are some of those conventions and format pieces that are that are that can translate from a rock station to a classical station? Well, there's certain things about 
radio in general that I'll go to first, then I'll go to the specifics of music. But um, there was a brilliant program director in New York in the in, in the early 70s, well into the 80s, actually, who I've had the honor. So I started at WQXR in 1977. Yeah. On air when I was like nineteen. Yeah, God this help. is the classical station in New York. It was yeah. Back then we were owned by the New York Times, and it was and I ended up being vice president of that station, which was really cool. And that yeah. was my first job ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, it was a long time ago, but I got to meet a guy named Scott Muni, and Scott Muni was program director of WNEW FM, which was the rock station I listened to. Yeah. And I said to him, can you teach me something? And Scott was a very generous man. And he said, what do you want to know? And I said, I've listened to your radio stations growing up. And what strikes me is that the people you have on the air are so good, so consistently good. And they bring the music to life. Mm. What is your secret? And he looked at me, and I'll never forget it. He said, Tony, I will never put anyone on the air I wouldn't want to have in my house for dinner. Mm. And I have lived by that mantra (laughs) ever since, because radio is very personal. Right. You turn this device on, and all of a sudden someone's talking to you from, you know, next to you. You can't see them, but they're there. You better like that person. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. I feel like one of the big trends in rock radio over the last you know couple of decades has been the I, I kind of call it like an iPod shuffle radio station where they just they seem to put in all this music and just kind of burp it out and you know often these are automated stations you know these yep. big clear channel operations where you know the the interstitial announcements are just kind of canned things and you know like part of what I react to is uh, with WCRB is is the human side of it you know, having live on-air announcers and stuff. But as I understand it, at, at least at one time, I, tell me if this is still the case, you guys are, you're, you're using some of the same software that these stations are and, and kind of going consistently for your program. It's not it's not each individual announcer no, acting as a DJ, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely correct. So let me define one of the real big differences between classical and rock for you yeah. is all that software programming software was designed for songs that last between two and a half and five minutes sure. during which the emotional shift is very small. Right. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. You take the greatest of the Beatles songs, pick whatever you want. How much is there shifting in those three minutes? Yeah. Uh, certainly not the songs that are going to be on a pop station. I mean, I'm thinking exactly. like a day in the life or something, maybe, but you yeah, know. maybe, but yeah. even that has, you know, it has two basic sections. Yep. Uh, and a repeat at the end. Right. So 25 years ago, when I was at Sony Worldwide and I was creating a radio format for national distribution, we worked with one of these software companies that had done the way they, they were using automated programming for these stations. And the concept, I loved the concept, but I said, you know, the problem is you're only giving me five fields to define the music. So right. fast, medium, slow is one field. Guitar heavy is another field. So pace, instrumentation, mood, those were the basic areas. I said, that's great for a three to five minute song, but what do I do with Dvorak's New World Symphony? (laughs) (laughs) You know, where the middle movement is 
slow and sad, and the third movement is about as joyful as you could be. Yeah. And the 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 back then, twenty five years ago, the the program, the computer programming people looked at me and said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, you see, classical has much more depth." And we re I had them redesign the software twenty five years ago to add all kinds of fields that would now allow us to program much more precisely. Yeah. And that software, that company's actually gone, but the software we use now has the same kind of flexibility built in. Okay? Now the difference is I view the software as the tool, not the decider. Yeah. So the way we program is seven years ago working with my program director I created an architecture of what the stations would sound like. What percentage of the music should be from the Baroque era? What percentage? And these are not, you know, if it's off by one-tenth of a percent, the station will fall apart. These are ranges you do. And you change it, but you can change it by day part. You can change it by day of the week. For example, at 8 o'clock in the morning, if we were to play the funeral march, you might be upset by that. Right. But at 11 o'clock at night, it might be very soothing. So that's the kind of thing you have to think about. So you alter these things within day parts. So I created the architecture for what the overarching sound of the station should be day part by day part. We then coded all the music that's in, and it's a huge database of more than 10,000 tracks. And it's all coded and consistently done. That then spits out a playlist, which we then hand edit. Okay. That's the step. That's the art. Yeah. So you've got the technology, and then you have the art. Yeah. And we refine the playlist by hand every single day. I think it would help you if I gave you the, the two rules that we program by. Sure. One is, in the best of all possible worlds, when you turn on that radio or your computer and stream us, whichever it is, I want you to have this reaction. And that reaction that I want you to have is, how did they know I felt like that right now? Yeah. And while you're listening to that, and we get to the end of that piece, I want a second thought to pop into your mind, which is, I wonder where they're going to take me next. Mm. If we can program using those two things, we will win. Yeah. Well, and and you do. And what's interesting to me always is thinking about like driving around on, you know, a rainy morning or something, you know, it's like, I I guess I wonder just, I don't think of a studio as a place that's super (laughs) exposed to the element. I I don't know, like, I'm vaguely familiar with the facilities at WGBH. I, I know the NPR side, but I don't know Sort of where you're, where the we're WCRB. Just, we're across are. the hallway in a in a in a one room studio. Okay. Do you have a window? Because I get like nope. the GBH one has a window. Well, so. we can see through the GBH studio to the outside. Okay. But it's like one, two, three, four windows removed. <laughs> so it's not a great view, I guess. <laughs> no, I wouldn't call it close. And let me put it this way: if we were an airline, you wouldn't have a window seat. Okay. okay? <laughs> Well, so that like, you know, just those little changes, like as, as the sun is just peeking over the horizon, as I'm, as I'm coming down the hill or something, you know, okay. like, how does that work? How do you, how so do you get full, that full disclosure, some of that is just dumb luck. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm not going to tell you because we program two weeks ahead of time. Okay. At least two weeks ahead of time. Does weather factor into it though? Like, are you well, looking at the forecast? So 
what I do is, again, you can't get specific, but you do kind of use best guesses. So, yeah. for example, as we get into the winter months, our mix of music gets a little darker and a little heavier. Yep. And uh, this is really funny. Once again, I'm going to go to a food analogy. I apologize. <laughs> In the middle of summer, it's 95 degrees outside and sunny and humid. Yeah. Would you like a nice steaming plate of beef burgundy? <laughs> no, I want watermelon no. or cucumbers or lemonade. Exactly. Or, yeah, right. And in the same way, we're not going to play you a heavy, heavy thing uh, in the middle of summer because we've lightened up. So you'll hear more Mozart and more Haydn during the summer and warmer months yep. and more Brahms. Now, that doesn't mean we eliminate either one during the, the off-season. We just change the balance a little bit. Right. The mantra that I follow was taught to me by my father, who, as I said, was a conductor. And when he was about to go into the Metropolitan Opera Pit to conduct his 150th performance of La Boheme, I was sitting there in his dressing room with him. Not 150th at the Met, but 150th in his career. Yeah. And I said to him, how do you keep La Boheme fresh for 150 performances? Right. And he looked at me and he said, Tony because there's someone in that audience who has never experienced it before. Mm. And this, this performance is for them. Yeah. And what he taught me with those words is a very simple thing. A great programmer or a great media person or a great performer, because I think we're in the performance business, must always keep the audience experience front and center. So everything we do on air, I'm always thinking in the back of my head, okay, if I were in the car or if I were walking down a street and I had my, my radio, you know, an iPod on and I happen to be listening to CRB, or if I'm reading a book late at night and I turn the radio on, what do I think the audience might want to have? Yeah. What is the experience I think? That, now, obviously I can't be right for everybody because – you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, there's some people who are going to work under normal circumstances. And there are some people who are having their second cup of coffee and settling down to read the paper. Right. And those are different experiences. But you hope that the greatness of the music connects you with those who are, are not the ones that you hit just right. But if you always keep in mind those two thoughts, you know, what is it that makes that piece feel so right for that moment? And then what can we do to make the next piece a different experience, but related experience? That's what we try to do. Yeah. I, I want to ask you on that sort of, not automation, but the, the scheduling piece of it, I guess. Sure. One of the things that really stands out with your station, I guess, is the live announcing. And I oh, wonder yeah. just, you know, figuring out that dance, I guess, between, you know, having having a DJ with a lot of personality in the music they play and stuff and having just a consistent branding across the board so that regardless of what time I'm tuning in, I'm getting a, a consistent experience. Well, you have to think in terms of what a, a dear friend of mine and one of my mentors, the guy, the guy who made me vice president actually at QXR, a guy named Warren Bodo, who passed away a few years ago. He taught me a phrase called stationality. We used to spend, you know, afternoons after work, we'd go out and have a drink together in New York. And, and I was, you know, I was 23 years old and running the programming for the station. I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? And and we would go out. I, was, I guess I was 24 at that point. But even so, still way too young for that job. But he took me out. We'd go out 
and he had wonderful ways of thinking about radio that I've adopted some of, including, you know, you think about if you go to, let me use an analogy. If you go to a, if you travel back in the days when people traveled safely (laughs) (laughs) and you go to a hotel, hotels have a feel to them. Yeah, sure. You know, there is a significant difference between a red roof inn and a Hilton, for example. Yeah. We used to do game called, what is the stationality? Is it a Hilton or is it a Red Roof Inn? Yeah. And then we would change it to, if WQXR were a department store in New York, which one would it be? Yeah. Is it Bloomingdale's or is it Brooks Brothers? Yeah. And then the third one we would play is, what is WQXR's weather forecast? Yeah. Is it a rainy, cold day or is it a sunny, warm day? And we would, I know that sounds supercilious and ridiculous, but that stationality, that concept of what are we about really makes a difference. Yeah. And when I got to CRB seven years ago, and God, I wish I could show it to you, but I, I can't get in my office. <laughs> there is a whiteboard in my office, which I wrote when I first arrived. And it was sort of the map of how to rebuild the station. Yeah. Some of the things we talked about was, you know, stationality. I I used a different term for it, but the same concept. And what are the on-air people there to do? Well, they need to be informed about the music, but not obsessed by the music. Mm. I don't want them taking the listener down into detail. Right. That you, who are a... I call you the target listener, by the way. You love other music, you listen to other music, but you come to us. Sure. That's wonderful. You're the best kind of listener I can have because you're listening to other things, which means we are part of your listening diet. So if if I have a radio station that you tune to, and you may want to listen to the music, but in order to listen to the music, you have to work your way through, you know, five-minute introductions to a piece of music you're not going to wait. You're not going to sit there and wait. You're going to go, I don't, I don't want to hear this. So informed, but not obsessed, casual, but not sloppy. People think of classical music as very formal. I I don't. Mozart didn't. Why should I? Yeah. So when I, when we program and when we host, I want, you know, people to connect to you, but I don't want them to connect to you because you can teach them. Right. I want you to connect them because you can relate to them. And by relating to them, it makes the music more accessible. Yeah. Well, it's it's funny. Like, there are moments where I'm listening and, you know, I, I can think of, of very specific times, you know, driving in the morning. And, you yeah. know, Laura Carlo will, will talk about, like, the new drink at Dunkin' Donuts. Or, you know, just some, like, kind of silly news item. And right. there's a moment where I'm like, Wait, did that just happen? Am I listening to a classical station? Right. <laughs> but but I'm also like, oh yeah, like I that was that was helpful. I enjoyed that. You know, it, it felt like talking to a friend. Well, see, here, here's the thing that I think if I look back at my 43 years of doing this, yeah. the thing I think I have changed most is I've changed what we are in the sense that we are not a classical radio station. We are a radio station that plays classical music. Mm. And I know that sounds like, oh, he's really <laughs> he's really splitting airs here. But I'm not. What you just described, why should a host for a classical 
radio station playing classical music not talk about Dunkin' Donuts? Do we not drink coffee? Right. Yeah. I think because I grew up in the classical music business, I don't have that, you know, classical music musicians need to be on a pedestal. Right. I think they're human beings. I got to know people like Yo-Yo Ma and Isaac Stern and Beverly Sills. So I think that because I grew up understanding that, I don't have the fear that some people have of humanizing all this stuff and saying it's entertainment. And that doesn't diminish its quality. It it doesn't make it a lesser thing, but it does allow more people to enjoy it. But on that, too, you know, I'm curious, like you you literally wrote a book about the history of terrestrial radio and, you know, as you say, have been immersed in it for, you know, most of your career. Like now that things are moving to digital, like the the way that I consume you, if I'm in the car, it's terrestrial. But 95 percent of the time it's on a, you know, a smart speaker or my phone or whatever. Like has the shift to digital changed any part of how you guys approach what you do? Well, certainly we we have more ways to connect with our listeners than ever before. I mean, social media, you know, we can we can put things on Instagram and bring listeners in that way. So yes, in terms of the programming of the radio station, it is still a radio station first. Uh-huh. I don't care how you listen to me, as long as you're listening. <laughs> you know, I don't care what device it's on. But I'll tell you something fascinating. So terrestrial radio is exactly 100 years old in the sense that the first commercial broadcast is considered to be the election results of 1920, when KDKA Pittsburgh sent those election results out by by radio to maybe 500, maybe 1,000 listeners. Yeah. And here we are a century later, radio is still pretty damn healthy, but people can access the content in different ways, is the way I view it. What digital has allowed us to do is some of the things we've done during this pandemic, such as creating these concerts out of Fraser where we're streaming you know, visual and audio right. to audiences around the world. That's pretty cool. But again, it's, it's what you do with it. It's not that you have the ability to. It's what do you do to make that a great experience. You know, If you talk to me over a period of a week, you'd hear the phrase, what is the audience experience? more times than you ever want to count yeah. because that's all I think about. Well, that's huge. I feel like so many businesses don't think in those terms. They think about what's easiest for them operationally or from a profitability yeah. standpoint. They yeah. don't think about the end user. Well, and that's one of the great sadnesses to me about what so much radio has become in this country Yeah, is that it is automated to save money. But when you do that, and one of the things that I insisted on when I got here, I mean, my mantra is we are live and local. I want people on the air so that when we get a snowstorm, that person can say, hey, be careful out there. Yeah. I want to wrap up with just, um, you know, you talked about some of these innovations during this time. And, you know, real quickly, I feel like we have to touch on the Messiah because that is such a a Boston tradition. I think it's 166 years. Is that right? See, here's the story on this, because it is something I am so incredibly proud of and proud to be part of the team that made this happen. You know, it's one of those moments, to be honest with you, where you you, you almost say, is this my drop the mic moment? (laughs) (laughs) You know, now that I've done this, do I say, hmm, (laughs) retirement looks better all of a sudden. (laughs) And in truth, the opposite has happened. I am more energized now than I've probably been in my career in 25 years. Uh But here's what happened. Um, Handel and Haydn Society, who we broadcast three or four times a year on CRB, has done a holiday performance of Handel's Messiah 
every year since 1854. Wow. 166 consecutive years. And in August of this year, David Sneed, who's the CEO of Handel and Haydn and somebody I love and respect and work very closely with, called me up and said, we're not going to be able to do Messiah. Yeah. And of course, at first I said, so what make, how does that make you different than all the other concerts that just got canceled? <laughs> and he said, that'll end the 166-year streak. And my exact words were, David, we're not going to let that happen. And beginning in August, we started thinking of ways to do this. And I don't want any of the credit. All I wanted to do at that moment and all I've said all along is we have incredible technology and we have incredibly talented people. They have the musicians. How do we make this happen? And if if you've ever watched the movie Shakespeare in Love, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, there's a scene near the end where Burbage, who's an actor, says, Will Shakespeare has a play and I have a theater. Hmm. And those stupid words, <laughs> I, I swear to you, those stupid words went through my head like a hundred times. Yeah. They have the players, and we have the technology. And working with Liz Chang, our head of TV, and my brilliant audio engineer, Double Grammy, I mean, how many radio stations have a Grammy award-winning you know, engineer on their staff? We just happened to, with Antonio Oliart, and an incredible team of TV folks, Bob Comiskey, Arnie Harchick, and so on, a whole, I mean, we brought everything to bear. And the ups and downs, I, I, I won't bore you with them, but it was heart-wrenching, because we'd be close, and then the rules of how you had to do things changed because of what was going on with COVID. Yeah. And so we'd redo the plan. Meanwhile, um, David and his team were working with two uh, doctors, epidemiologists, to create a plan whereby we could distance people and we would get them in and out of the studio so the air could circulate properly. And they submitted that plan to the state and, much to its credit, the state, after reviewing it, approved it. And they approved it on the day before we needed to pull the trigger or cancel. Wow. So, you know, there's always a drama behind the drama. (laughs) (laughs) I had told our TV folks at that point that I said, you know what? I doubt we're going to see this happen. And they said, great. And they moved on. And then David called me up and said, we got permission. What do we do now? And I remember sitting here thinking, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh. You know, I got what I asked for. So then everybody kicked into high gear. I can't even walk you through all the detail because it is so deep that I don't remember most of it. Right. But but I, I just know that it was complicated and it remains complicated. The worst part was trying to name the thing because you can't call it Handel's Messiah because what we produced is part one of Handel's Messiah, but it's so much more than that. And that's where we came up with the title Handel's Messiah for our time. I mean, you have imagery in there of the pandemic and, you know, just COVID testing and first responders. Like it's, it's not just about the music. It's about so much more. No, it it is a, I don't, I wouldn't call it a music video because it's far more than that. It is a narrative with this incredible music 
of our time. And, and you know, as a writer, um, I thought about this long and hard and actually wrote a piece just to help my own thinking. I do that sometimes. I just write a think piece. Yeah. And I wrote this piece. The arc I kept coming to was 166 years, 32 presidencies, a civil war, two world wars, and a global pandemic. This tradition survived that. Yeah. And now we were about to see it end. And that's what the driving motivation was. And the piece of music goes back to, I think, 17, I can't remember the date now, but whatever it was. How incredible that three centuries later, we are still celebrating this piece of music. Even in this horrible time, which is like living through the Black Plague. Right. We were able to save it because of this incredible technology that exists today. So it's a story of today set against the music of yesterday. Hmm. And that's the narrative I keep playing with. And so you hear the performance, you you hear the beauty of that music. Um, the In fact, I was just, before we started talking, I was watching that gorgeous soprano aria, He Shall Feed His Flock. And it is the most flowing, tender, emotionally rich little aria. And it's set against this pandemic and the food insecurity that we see in the world today. And, you know, I I said to, to the team, I said, you know what, it really is, it's a story of yesterday and today. It's a story of sadness and hope. It's a story of darkness and light. And it's a story of pain and survival. And so you, you, you know, I, again, as a writer, I always think of, you know, where's the arc? Well, the arc is there is hope. Yeah. And I must tell you, there's a, there's a <laughs> little part of me that, that we are finishing this just as the vaccines are being put in people's arms. Right. Is a very strange feeling because I mean, I don't want people to walk away from this feeling depressed. I want them to walk away feeling hopeful. That's why we end with the hallelujah chorus. But I want people to think about where we've been, what we've come through, not only in this nine-month period, but in 300 and whatever years. It's the story of 300 years, but it's right now, too, the story of Christmas and Hanukkah and, you know, all of these traditions that go back, you know, thousands of years. Like, right. It's so it's so human. It's beautiful. Well, it, it, it is. The, you just use the word tradition. What is it about tradition? Uh, and, and you know what? I, 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 here you go. I'm going to wrap it all up neatly in a bow for you as my Hanukkah <laughs> present to you. Thank you. You talked about what classical music, the way you listen to it. Yeah. And what you're tapping into is a sense of tradition. Hmm. There is a tradition to classical music performance. The best thing that classical music is, is spiritual. It connects with our inner harmony. Not with our brain, it connects to our heart. All right, there we go, Tony Riddell. What a career, huh? He has just seen every side of the radio business, understands it inside and out. And I love, anytime I can talk to somebody who has a job, 
that is all about looking at the granular level of something and really fundamentally understanding what it is that they do. You know, I feel like so many people don't take the time to stop and think about the job that they're doing and why they do what they do and what works. And, you know, they just sort of do what they were trained to do or what everyone around them is doing. But the true pioneers, the true leaders, to me at least, are the people that can really explain to you why something is working or if it's not, what you need to do to make it work. And Tony is clearly one of those guys. So loved having that conversation with him. You can stream the performance of Handel's Messiah for Our Time at WGBH.org or at ClassicalWCRB.org. I know most of you that are outside of the Boston area cannot get WCRB on your radio dial, but it is streaming online as well at ClassicalWCRB.org. And if you have a smart speaker like I do, just say, Alexa, play WCRB, and you'll get it. And again, if you're like me, it's going to be there all day long, just kind of floating in the background and letting you focus on other stuff. It doesn't compete with your thoughts in the way that other music can. And, and like Tony and I talked about, we both love other music, but there's something nice about just kind of having classical low in the background that I have found really meditative. Tony also mentioned the essay that he wrote, helping him sort of understand the value of tradition and why putting on the Messiah was so important this year. He's actually given me permission to run that in my newsletter. So that will be out this coming Sunday. Go to heathrasella.com, enter your email address there, and you will be on the list for free access to the newsletter. comes out every Sunday, has lots of great information about the show and additional context and all that. So go and check it out. Usually I have new shows every Monday and Thursday. This week I'm not going to do a Thursday show because of Christmas Eve. I'm still trying to figure out what's going to happen next week with New Year's, so stand by for that. If you don't already, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Heath Rosella. You'll get updates there or certainly subscribe to the show. And, you know, if there's a new show next week, you'll be the first one to have it in your feed. I hope everybody who is celebrating has a very safe and Merry Christmas. If I don't talk to you before the new year, have a great new year as well. I will be back soon. Stay safe, guys. <laughs>